0: the school of arbitrariness, information cynicism, the press. Quoting Oscar Wilde, whoever tells the truth will be caught doing it sooner or later. For the consciousness that informs itself in all directions, everything becomes problematic and inconsequential. A man and a woman, two illustrious scoundrels, three men in a boat, four fists for one hallelujah five principal problems of the world economy sex in the workplace seven threats to peace eight deadly sins of civilized humanity nine symphonies with karayan ten black pawns in the north-south dialogue it could just as well be the ten commandments with Chowton heston but here we don't have to worry about details I do not want to quote cliches about the notorious cynicism of journalists and press people. Not merely because it's still only a few individual reporters who go so far as to orchestrate, with African mercenaries the most photogenic arrangement for an execution, so as to be able to send home interesting film material, or who experience a conflict of conscience about whether, at a car race, to warn a driver about an accident up ahead or shoot photos when he crashes into the wrecked car. It would also be pointless to reflect on whether journalism is a better climate for cynicism than public relations institutes, advertising agencies, commercial studios, film production circles, political propaganda offices, TV stations, or the studios of the pornographic press. The point is to find out why cynicism almost as if it were a natural necessity, belongs to the professional risks and deformations of those whose job it is to produce pictures and information about, quote-unquote, reality. We have to speak of a twofold disinhibition that concerns the production of pictures and information in modern mass media. Of the disinhibition of the portrayal vis-à-vis what is portrayed, as well as of the disinhibition of the currents of information in relation to the consciousnesses that absorb them. The first disinhibition is based on the systematic journalistic exploitation of others' catastrophes, in which there always seems to be an unspoken contract of interests between public demand for sensations and journalistic provision of them. A considerable part of our press serves nothing other than the hunger for misadventure, which is the moral vitamin of our society. The use value of news is measured in large part by its stimulation value, which obviously can be raised considerably through its packaging. A journalism can hardly flourish completely without makeup. Insofar as it could be understood as simply the art of comprehensible portrayal, we could value it positively as the descendant of a rhetorical tradition for which the way something was brought to market was never a matter of indifference. However, the packaging of the usual cynical type rests on a twofold disingenuousness. With literary aesthetic means, it dramatizes the innumerable world events, both large and small, and transfers them, without making the transition recognizable, and with a more or less clear consciousness of deceiving, into fiction, in their form as well as their content. Second, the packaging lies with its sensationalizing style by continually restoring a long-since superseded, morally primitive frame of reference in order to be able to present the sensations as something that fall outside these coordinates. Only a highly paid, corrupt mentality lets itself be used over a long period of time for such games. Modern primitive conservatism owes a great deal to a correspondingly primitive journalism that practices daily cynical restoration by acting as if every day could have its sensation, and as if a form of consciousness had not long since arisen in our heads, precisely through its reporting, that has learned to accept scandal as a way of life and catastrophe as background noise. With a trumped-up sentimental moralism A world picture is continually concocted in which just such a sensationalism can exercise its seductive and stupefying effects. The second disinhibition of the information industry is even more problematic. This industry floods the capacities of our consciousness in a downright anthropologically threatening way. One has to have been completely away from media civilization for a long time months or years in order to be so centered and concentrated when one returns that one can consciously observe in oneself the renewed distraction and deconcentration that occurs when one takes part in the modern information media. Seen psycho-historically, the urbanization and informatization of our consciousnesses in the media complex probably represent the aspect of modernity that cuts deepest into life. And only in such a world can the modern Cynical Syndrome, diffuse omnipresent cynicism, unfold in the way we experience it today. We now regard it as normal that in magazines we find, almost like in an old world theatre, all regions close to one another. Reports on mass starvation in the third world next to advertisements for champagne. Articles on environmental catastrophes, beside a discussion of the most recent automobile production our minds are trained to scan and comprehend an encyclopedically broad scale of irrelevancies, in which the irrelevance of the single item comes not so much from itself, but from its being arranged in the flood of information from the media. Without years blunting and training in elasticity, no human consciousness can cope with what is demanded of it in flicking through a single thick magazine. And without intensive practice, people, if they do not want to risk some form of mental disintegration, cannot bear this continual flickering of important and unimportant items. The waxing and waning of reports that in one moment demand the highest attentiveness, and in the next are totally passe. If we want to speak positively about the superfluity of information streams through our heads, we would have to praise them for the principle of boundless empiricism in the free market. Indeed, We could go so far as to grant to the modern mass media one function in which they are intimately linked with philosophy. The limitless empiricism of the media imitates philosophy to a certain extent in that they adopt the latter's perspective on the totality of being. Of course, not of a totality in concepts, but a totality in episodes. An enormous simultaneity stretches itself out in our informed consciousness. Here, some are eating. There, some are dying. Here, some are being tortured. There, famous lovers separate. Here, the second car is being discussed. There, a nationwide catastrophic drought. Here, there are tips on tax write-offs according to Section 7b. There, the economic theory of the Chicago Boys. Here, thousands go wild at a rock concert. There, a dead woman lies undiscovered for years in her flat. Here, the Nobel Nobel Prize for Chemistry, Physics and Peace are awarded. There, only every second person knows the name of the President of the Federal Republic of Germany. Here, Siamese twins are successfully separated. There, a train with 2,000 passengers derails into a river. Here, a daughter is born to an actor couple. There, the cost estimates of a political experiment rise from half a million to two million. Two million people, that is. Or well, such as life. As news, everything is at our disposal. What is foreground? What background? What important? What unimportant? What trend? What episode? Everything is ordered into a uniform line in which uniformity, like also produces equivalence, like and indifference, like gülterkeit. Where does this unleashed drive for information come from? This addiction and this compulsion to live daily in the whir of information, and to tolerate the constant bombardment of our minds with unbelievable masses of indifferent, important, sensational, unimportant news. It seems that since the beginning of the modern era, our civilization has become entangled in a peculiarly contradictory relation to novelty. To the novella, to the case study, to the interesting event—in a certain way, as if it had lost control over its hunger for experience and its thirst for news. Translator's note: Noi literally, craving for the new. Enlightenment wants to turn the universe increasingly into the epitome of news and information and it achieves this with the aid of two complementary media, the encyclopedia and the newspaper. With the former our civilization undertakes the attempt to span and organize the circle of the world and the entire cycle of knowledge. With the newspaper it produces a daily shifting frame of the movement and transformation of reality and its eventfulness. The encyclopedia comprises the constants, The newspaper the variables and both are similar in their capacity to convey a maximum of information with a minimum of structuring. Bourgeois culture has had to live with this problem from the start and it is worth a quick look to see how to date. It is worth a quick look to see how, to date, it has come through unscathed. The person in a relatively closed culture with an organic information horizon and a limited curiosity about the outside, remains largely unaffected by this problem. Not so, however, with European culture, particularly in its bourgeois period, with it which is characterised by its labouring, researching, travelling, empirically disposed, experience-hungry and reality-thirsty individuals. Through centuries of the accumulation of knowledge, they bring their civilization onto a curiosity course that, especially in the 19th century, and even more completely in the 20th, has been transformed with the triumph of the radio and electronic media into an overpowering strong current that washes us forward rather than being steered by us. All this began seemingly quite innocently, namely with the emergence of novelists narrators of curiosities and entertainment artists who in the late middle ages began to build up a novella-like narrative news network in which the accent increasingly shifted from morally exemplary didactic stories to the anecdotal remarkable special extraordinary piquant and picaresque the strange and singular the eventful and amusing the terrifying and that which causes one to ponder. Perhaps this is the most fascinating process of all in our culture, how in the course of the centuries such singular stories of events gain increasing acceptance over the standard stories, the fixed motifs, and the commonplace, how the new sets itself off from the old, and how the news from outside works on the still narrow traditional consciousness. Through the history of our literature and discourse, therefore, even more than through the history of law, we can study the unfolding of quote-unquote modern complexity. For it is not at all self-evident that our consciousness has been able to absorb and order information about explosions in the outer layers of the sun, failed harvests in Tierra del Fuego, and the way of life of the Hopi Indians about the gynaecological problems of a Scandinavian Queen and the Peking Opera Company and the sociological structure of a village in Provence. Since the age of the Renaissance, when Jakob Burckhardt poignantly described with the formula the discovery of the world and of people, the heads of those who are plugged into the learned diplomatic news information network have been inflated with immense masses of news. An unleashed empiricism builds up mountains of assertions, reports, theories, descriptions, interpretations, symbolisms and speculations on one another until in the end, in the most elevated intellects of the age, one thinks of figures like Paracelsus, Rabelais, Cardano, Faust. Knowledge, quote-unquote, grows profusely and boils over in chaotic ambiguity. We no longer remember this early period of a, quote, Baroque Age of Information, unquote, because the Age of Enlightenment, Rationalism and the sciences has cut us off from it. What we today call Enlightenment, by which we inevitably mean Cartesian Rationalism, also refers from the perspective of the history of information to a necessary sanitary measure. It was the insertion of a filter against the flooding of the individual consciousness which already had begun in the learned circles of the late renaissance with an infinity of equally important, equivalent and indifferent pieces of news from the most diverse sources. Here too, a situation regarding information had arisen, in which individual consciousness was hopelessly exposed to news, pictures, texts. Rationalism is not only a scientific predisposition, but even more a hygienic procedure for consciousness, namely a method of no longer having to give everything its due. Now we separate the examined from the unexamined, the true from the false. The hearsay from the evidence of one's own eyes, the adopted from what one has thought out for oneself, the statements that rest on the authority of tradition from those that rest on the authority of logic and observation, etc. The disburdening effect is initially enormous, the memory is devaluated, in its place criticism and a defensive, selective, testing kind of thinking are intensified. Now, one does not have to let everything pass through. Indeed on the contrary, what is valid and has scientific substance is from now on only a tiny island of truth in the middle of an ocean of vague and false assertions. Soon they will be called idols, prejudices and ideologies. Truth becomes like a solid, rather small fortress in which the critical thinker resides, and outside the fortress, stupidity and the infinite falsely formed and falsely informed consciousnesses rage. But it took only one or two centuries before this new rationalism, which was initially so successful in its mental hygienic procedures, ran into the same difficulties it wanted to overcome. For enlightenment research too indeed all the more so does not elude the problem of producing a world that is much too large of bringing forth a boundless empiricism and of unleashing still more streams of reports consisting of truths and novelties rationalism copes with its own products just as ineffectively as the renaissance literati did with the measureless confusion of traditions from then on moreover A certain intellectual shrinking process can be observed within the strictly rationalist camp. So the impression is given that the sanitary and defensive function of rationalism has won the upper hand over the productive research and clarifying function. In fact, with some so-called critical rationalists and so-called analytical philosophers, the suspicion is justified that they emphasize their rational methods so much because there is a lot they simply do not understand. And so with clever resentment, they cover up their lack of comprehension with methodological rigor. Here, however, a merely negative, filtering, defensive function inherent in rationalism from the beginning is revealed. We today are not the first to notice this. Since the 18th century, whenever people with more sensitive understanding and with psychological, poetic, and emotional aptitudes, spoke out, they expressed their concerns about the rationalism. They expressed their concerns that the rationalism was too narrow, and the learned pedantry too narrow-minded. For them, too, the full breadth of human experience and culture in their time could not be grasped with the rationalist hygienic instrumentarium alone. I believe that the significance of bourgeois art and literature in the history of spirit can be best surveyed from this perspective. The work of art, the closed just as much as the open, placed its aesthetic order emphatically against the lexicographical chaos of the encyclopedists and the journalistic chaos of the newspaper's empiricism. Here, something durable was erected against the increasingly broad flood of simultaneous inconsequences. Formulated in a language that penetrated the ears and took hold of the heart, with constructions to which one could return. Cultivation, identity, quotations that is one complex. Often presented in ritualised forms that maintain a highly significant durability in a stream of inconsequential changes, built up around characters who seem pithy, coherent, and vitally interested in plots that unfold life before us, dramatized and intensified. With all this, bourgeois art possessed an enormous significance for the forming and strengthening of consciousness, threatened by the waxing chaos of experience in developed bourgeois capitalist society. Only art could still, in any measure, provide what neither theology nor rationalist philosophy were in a position to give a view of the world as universe, and a totality as cosmos. With the end of the bourgeois age, however, this bourgeois quasi-philosophical exercise of the arts is also extinguished. Already in the 19th century, art gets caught in a narcissistic circling of itself, and in the ruts of the artistic, whereby its illusion of representation increasingly fades soon art no longer appears as the medium in which the rest of the world could be conceptualized and presented with a unique transparency but itself becomes one more puzzle among others more and more it gives up its representational ersatz theological ersatz cosmological function and in the end stands before consciousness as a phenomenon that distinguishes itself from other information, above all, because in it one does not know, quote, what the whole is supposed to mean, unquote. that it is no longer something transparent, no longer functions as a clarifying medium, and that it remains darker than the all too explicable rest of the world. Only after the decline of the great function of representation in the arts was the time ripe for the ascent of the mass media to their hegemonic position with regard to information about the world as event and actuality. Here, we do not want to get into a discussion about the interlude provided by the life philosophies and grand theories of the 19th century, halfway between art as religion and mass media consciousness. I refer the reader to the section on the Grand Inquisitor. In the Cabinet of Cynics, Chapter 7. The mass media were the first to develop a capacity that no rationalist encyclopedia, no work of art, and no life philosophy could do to that extent. With immeasurable power of compilation, they steer towards that which grand philosophy could only dream about, the total synthesis. Of course, at the absolute rock-bottom of intelligence, in the form of total summation, They really do admit of a universal chaotic empiricism. They can report on everything, touch on everything, record and place everything side by side. In this they are even more than philosophy. They are descendants of both the encyclopedia and the circus. The inexhaustible ordering capacity of the mass media is rooted in their additive style, only because they have placed themselves at the very bottom of mental penetration, can they give and say anything? And this, moreover, all at once. They have only a single intelligible element, the and. With this and, literally all things can be turned into neighbours. In this way, chains and neighbourhoods arise that no rationalist and no aesthete could have allowed themselves to dream about. Expenditure, cuts and premieres and motorbike world championships and street walkers, tacks and coup d'etats. The media can provide everything because they have given up without a trace the ambition of philosophy to also understand the given. They comprise everything because they comprehend nothing. They talk about everything and say nothing about anything. The media kitchen serves us daily a reality stew with innumerable ingredients. But it still tastes the same every day. At least there must have once been a time when, because the stew was still new, people were not yet fed up with it. Instead, fascinated at the flood of unleashed facticity. Thus, in 1929, Frank Thiers could declare with a half-justified pathos, "Journalism is the church of our time," quoting Das gesicht unserer Zeit briefen Zeitgenossen." fourth edition Stuttgart 1929 page 62 the and is the morality of journalists they have to swear so to speak a professional oath that when they report on something they will not object to the placement of this thing and this report among other things and other reports with the use of an and one thing is mm, one thing Is one thing and the medium permits no more to produce connections between things that after all would be the same as to disseminate ideology therefore whoever produces connections gets chucked out whoever thinks has to get out whoever counts to three is a fantasizer the media's empiricism tolerates only isolated reports And this isolation is more effective than any censorship, because it guarantees that what belongs together does not get together, and can be found only with difficulty in people's minds. A journalist is someone who is forced by occupation to forget what the number is called that comes after one and two. Whoever still knows it is probably not a democrat, or is a cynic. To look at this and, critically, should be worth the effort viewed in isolation, it is already cynical in some way? How can a logical particle be cynical? A man and a woman, knife and fork, pepper and salt, what could be objectionable about that? Well, let us try some other combinations. Lady and whore, love thy neighbour and shoot him dead starvation, and caviar for breakfast. Well here, the and seems to have been caught up between antagonisms. That it renders by way of a sort of shortcut as neighbours, so that the contrasts scream out at one another. But what can the and do about it? It does not create the antagonisms. It simply couples the unequal pairs. In fact, in the media, the and does nothing other than place things next to each other, founding, neighbourhoods, coupling, contrasting, no more and no less. The AND has a capacity of building a linear series or chain whose individual links touch solely through the logical coupler. The latter, in turn, says nothing about the essence of the elements it brings into a row. In this indifference of the AND vis-à-vis the things it places beside one another lies the germ of a cynical development. For through the mere placing in a row and the external, syntactic relation between everything, it produces a uniformity that does not do justice to the things that have been set in a row. The and, therefore, does not remain a pure and, but rather develops the tendency of eliding into an is equal to. From that moment on, a cynical tendency can propagate itself. For when the and that can stand between everything also means an is equal to, everything becomes the same as everything else, and each is just as valid as the other. Out of the sameness of form of the and series comes imperceptibly a factual sameness of value and a subjective sameness of validity. Thus, when I go down the street in the morning and the newspapers scream at me from the mute vendor, I have to choose, for all practical purposes, only the favoured indifference of the day. Is my choice for this murder, or that rape, this earthquake, or that kidnapping? Every day we must make renewed use of the natural right not to learn of millions of things. That I must exercise this right is guaranteed by the media, which, at the same time, guarantees that those millions of things are already on their way to me, and that I only have to look at a headline for a split second, and already another inconsequentiality has managed to leap up into my consciousness. Once it has made that leap, it also induces me to make a protocol of a cynical indifference towards whatever has reached me as news. I register as a hyper informed person that I live in a news world that is a thousandfold too big, and that I can only shrug my shoulders at most of it because my capacities for empathy, outrage, and thinking through are tiny in comparison to what? To that which offers itself and makes an appeal for my attention. Without noticing it, we have worked our way up to a point at which it becomes possible to take up the best of the Marxist tradition and rethink it. Those who speak of uniformity, equivalence and indifference have secretly already arrived on the soil of Marx's classical achievements in thinking, and stand in the middle of its reflection on the puzzle of equivalence relations between goods and things. Should there be connections and transitions here? Has not Marx, in his commodity analysis, provided a fulminating and logically very subtle description of how a same valuedness produces a sameness and validity indifference that precipitates in the relation of commodity and price the best prep school for das kapital would it not consist in watching television several hours a day looking through several newspapers and magazines the remaining hours and continuously listening to the radio For basically we can read capital as often as we like and we will never understand the decisive point if we do not learn it from our own experience and if we have not sucked it into our own structure of thinking and way of feeling we live in a world that brings things into false equations produces false sameness of form and false samenesses of value pseudo equivalences between everything and everyone and thereby also achieves an intellectual disintegration and indifference in which people lose the ability to distinguish correct from false, important from unimportant, productive from destructive, because they are used to taking the one for the other. To live with pseudo-equivalences, to think in pseudo-equivalences, when you can do that you are a full citizen in this cynical civilization, and when you are conscious of it, you have founded the Archimedean point from which this civilization can be critically unhinged. Marx circled around this point in his powerful movements of thought on the critique of economy in order to unfold the central inequality of our form of economy, that between wage and labor value from ever new angles. However, the simplest path to an understanding of capital leads not via a reading of capital we do not have to say, along with the unhappy Althusser, Lere le capital, but rather Lere le Stern, Lere le Bild newspaper, Lere le Spiegel, Lere Brigitte. There, we can study the logic of pseudo-equivalences much more clearly and much more openly. In the last instance, cynicism leads back to the amoral equating of different things. Those who do not see the cynicism evident when press reports on torture in South America are placed between perfume ads will also not perceive it in the theory of surplus value, even if they have read it a hundred times.